0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: You know, there are some cases where you give people lots of attempts and you're not worried and they're an easy mask and they're an easy ventilation. And, and so you keep trying the same thing a few times before you move on. Most of these kids, if I trust my fellows technique or my own technique, and I take a look and I can't even remotely get what I need, I don't say, okay, well, let me try that again. It's next up the ladder. Because the longer you spend on these kids, the more likely they are to either have a spontaneous laryngospasm or something in or cause bleeding or something like that. So these are the kids that you don't mess around with multiple attempts.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table at ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to put in your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist at University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. And I have a very special guest today. We have Dr. Brienne Barnett Roby. She's a pediatric otolaryngologist at the University of Minnesota, Children's of Minnesota. She's the fellowship director for pediatric ENT and plastic surgery, and she's also the director of the CLEF team on the St. Paul campus at Children's of Minnesota. She's here to talk to us today about mandibular distractions in infants. Welcome to the show, Brianne. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. So Brianne and I, we met on the interview trail um, when we were applying for pediatric ENT fellowships many moons ago. And I forget, I think it was, I, I want to say my first, like, like when I think about it, I, I feel like we met maybe in maybe an elevator on one of the hospital tours, maybe in ar- at Arkansas. Was that the one? That may have been it. Yeah. And I think I had
1: a, a little baby and you, I think, had a newborn. And it was a bonding moment in an <laughs> elevator at a, a, an interview, getting to discuss the challenges of, of like, you know, children at home and et cetera.
0: Yeah, because you're right. My older one was probably about two months, maybe close to three months at the time. And I had my, you know, bag to travel. I think I had my pump bag, all kinds of things. And I had this whole setup everywhere I went through traveling and it was, man, it was a mess. How old was your baby at the time? She was about seven months old. I was just, I
1: think, a couple months ahead of you and we were sharing the worst stories.
0: (laughs) Well, when I met you, I knew you were going to be a star and you are a star. We met again when you were the ASPO Fellowship Committee chair. And it's funny because I remember the first All-PD meeting that you ran and it was just like you had a presence. When you speak, people listen. And when you have ideas, they're conceptualized and actualized. So I was just like, who is this person? She's just able to get it done But anyway, so I'm very happy to be able to still have connection with you and have this opportunity to do this podcast, especially on mandibular distractions in infants, because I think that not even just the distraction portion, just these babies are hard to work up. And, you know, for any pediatric otolarymbiologist, we need to understand the workup as well as the airway management. Before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Yeah. So um, like Gopi said, I am at Children's of
1: Minnesota and we are affiliated with the University of Minnesota. There are eight pediatric otolaryngologists in our practice, and we cover the Twin Cities, which is a little bit of an interesting dynamic. We have Minneapolis and St. Paul, which are separate, but yet very closely connected cities with different dynamics. And so we have some interesting practice makeup, just dealing with the different communities. We are part of the residency program at the University of Minnesota, and they take four residents a year. So that means that we have a second year and a fourth year resident that rotate with us. And then we have our fellowship, which we are one of the longer standing pediatric otolaryngology fellowships that's been around for about 21 years now, started back in 2000. So we've been around for quite some time. And I took over as fellowship director back. I was assistant director in 2015, 16, um, and then took over kind of at the end of 2016 as fellowship director. So I have had some fun getting to build that as we've gained more partners and as the dynamics with fellowship matches have changed now with COVID and everything, too, that adds another layer to the mix. And then my practice is it's kind of an interesting practice. In Minnesota, we actually don't have limitations kind of on what people practice. So we don't have like an ear surgeon and a, you know, a a airway surgeon. A lot of us do a lot of big mix. And so my passion, one of my biggest passions is for the cleft and craniofacial patients. And so I do a lot of that and that incorporates mandibular distraction. I also do a decent amount of pediatric head and neck, including one of the thyroid surgeons. And then I actually still do pediatric ears, so including cochlear implants. So again, kind of this wide variety uh, of my practice. But I would say the cleft and craniofacial is kind of where I dedicate my extra time, my time outside of my day-to-day where I'm doing research and education and learning. And it's probably the biggest part of my practice that I head
0: towards. I love it. I love that you still are able to do so much within pediatric ENT. So let's get into it. You know, when we think about the distraction babies, we think about micrognathia and retrognathia. What's the difference? Because I feel like, you know, we get those calls from the NICU and it's like, you know, this baby looks like their chin's kind of small. And, you know, we're supposed to go evaluate that. What's the difference? How do I know? Yeah, so it's funny because
1: I do think for the most part on a day-to-day basis, they're fairly interchangeable. If you really want to get down to the nitty gritty, retrognathia just means that the jaw has a normal size. It's just a little bit set back. So it's like a, a person with an overbite, right? Which there's lots of kids who needed retainers and braces for having a little bit of an overbite. And that's truly retrognathia. It's got everything else that is normal. It's the correct size. It's just a little bit set back. As opposed to micrognathia where the mandible itself is truly smaller than it should be and smaller comparatively to the maxilla or the upper jaw. And so it is also retrognathic because if it's micrognathic, it's not going to extend as far and it is going to be set back. But if you look at the overall size of the mandible from micrognathy, it's also just smaller than it should be. And that's the true difference. But again, I would say on a day-to-day basis, if you're not down into the nitty gritty, it's oftentimes used interchangeably because if it's set back, is it because the jaw, the whole jaw is smaller or is it just set back a little bit? And that's where our specialty can come a little bit into play.
0: And so on your bedside exam, in terms of it being set back, do you take a ruler? Are there certain millimeter measurements? Is it just, hey, you eyeball it because you've seen enough at this point? How can you tell? Because they're usually, you know, two days old. And I'll be honest, I I can't tell. It's so small. Yeah, I don't take a ruler. What I tend to be
1: looking at is, number one, can you feel their angle of the mandible? Which even in babies with micrognathia, they should have an angle of the mandible. You should be able to feel that angle. And when you start to feel the angle of the mandible and then feel the body of the mandible, in retrognathic babies, they have a really nice size body of the mandible. So they don't have any lacking parts and they have a really nice long body of the mandible. Whereas in micrognathia, when you feel the angle of the mandible and you start to feel that body, you're like, gosh, there's not much here. It's really small and the whole mandible is just smaller. And so I think, you know, in terms of doing two measurements, there's nothing really out there on doing true measurements but if you're trying to get a gauge of things if you're like wow this jaw feels like a normal sized jaw it's just a little bit set back compared to the upper one it's probably retrognathia and if it's truly smaller and there's not much to it in terms of the body of the mandible that's probably micrognathia
0: okay and then the other thing that kind of helps me is you know is there a cleft palate or not can you tell us a little bit about pierre Robin sequence and how often is there a cleft palate associated with the sequence that's such a good question.
1: So in terms of Roban sequence, which is technically a triad of micrognathia, glossoptosis, and airway obstruction. So glossoptosis meaning that the tongue is falling back into the airway and causing obstruction. So that's the true definition of the triad of Roban sequence, which if you look at older papers, it was peer-roman sequence. If you look at newer papers, we've kind of transitioned to just roban sequence. I don't know why the change. It's just you know, in terms of like recent papers I've submitted, they're like it's now roban sequence. And I'm like I know, but I'm, it's, I'm I'm having a hard time transitioning from peer romance sequence. So if I were to talk to a number of like my mentors, you know, the generation just in front of me. Many of them would have said that there is no such thing as having Roban sequence without having a cleft palate. And that was kind of the modality that I kind of went in with, the idea that if they didn't have a cleft palate, they didn't truly have Roban sequence. And now looking at the ultimate definition, that's just not correct. You can have Roban sequence without clefting. They say, I mean, numbers show that at least 90% of them do have a cleft palate. So by far and away, most do have a cleft palate, but you could have usually probably more in syndromic children have a micrognathia, glossoptosis, airway obstruction, and not have a cleft. It doesn't necessarily mean that their palate will completely function normally, but they don't have a cleft palate.
0: And then how often is micrognathia or P. arabians diagnosed on ultrasound? So prenatal ultrasound, like are you having to do a lot of antenatal counseling? Like how does that work? Not Yeah. So it's becoming more and
1: more common. It's still not common. I would say most people with roband sequence still are not getting diagnosed prenatally. Although you can now, especially on like the, the higher definition prenatal ultrasound. So if people are getting the really high definition three in like 40 now, the 40 ultrasounds, they do something called an inferior facial angle. And that's kind of this clue that they may have micrognathia. It's Not completely accurate because they're looking at measurements that they may not get the perfect side view or the perfect sagittal view to get that actual measurement. But that's when they're calling micrognathia on a prenatal ultrasound. It's based on that inferior facial angle, which just has to do with the measurement of basically the angle of the mandible and how long the body of the mandible is after that. And then they look at the angle of the chin to the angle of the nose. And if that's less than 50 degrees, they think that there's concern for micrognathia. So if there's a wider angle because the chin to the nose have a greater distance, then it's less likely to be there. In reality, the only time it's clinically becoming something that we see ahead of time is when they are developing polyhydramnios. And in those cases, when the concern for micrognathia is severe enough that they're starting to have polyhydramnios that tends to be when our maternal fetal medicine will bring it to our conference and discuss ahead of time like this is concerns for the airway we're concerned about the severity of the micrognathia otherwise most often what i hear about it is i see a child in the NICU and when i ask mom about it they'll be like oh yeah my you know my OB said the jaw or the chin might be a little bit small but it probably wouldn't be much of anything Um, And so we don't often get those prenatal consults. If we do get the prenatal consults, it's also not in the typical prenatal setting. Like I see a prenatal cleft lip, it's more often in our maternal fetal medicine comprehensive team. And that's where the maternal fetal medicine doctors will say, Hey, there's this child. We're a little bit worried about it. Do we need to have ENT present for airway management? I can tell you, we've never once for just a but it's thought to be robantic when it's done like an exit procedure. Now, there are severe cases, a baby that had Nagar syndrome and had really like no mandible. Those infants we did do an exit procedure on. But those are picked up at that point when the, you know, because again, they had polyhydramnios and We ended up getting um, an MRI ahead of time. And the MRI is actually, you know, very sensitive for picking up micrognathia as opposed to just even a three or four dimensional ultrasound.
0: And for our listeners and for me, can you go over the relationship between airway obstruction and polyhydramnios?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. So polyhydramnios is when inside the uterus, when the mom is pregnant, there's too much amniotic fluid. So there's too much fluid for the baby to be swimming around in. And what most people don't realize is that throughout a pregnancy, once the baby starts to get farther along in the pregnancy, they actually start to swallow and they're swallowing the amniotic fluid and that's helping to develop both lung tissue and also stomach and that kind of thing. And when there's something obstructing that or blocking that ability for the fluid to go down and to be swallowed and help develop the lungs and the stomach, then they start to get too much fluid. And that's when they get polyhydramnios. And so whenever you see polyhydramnios, the first thing that the OB doctors are going to be doing is looking to see if there's something that's gonna be causing them not to have either normal lung or normal stomach development. And it could be upper airway, like again, micrognathia and glass that's obstructing the ability to swallow or the ability to breathe. Or it might be, you know, something like a diaphragmatic hernia or something like that that's completely unrelated to an airway issue that ENT needs to be involved about. But that's what they're looking at and that's what their job is, is to try to figure that out before the baby arrives.
0: All right. So now let's say the Nikki calls you. And, you know, it's a two-day-old, maybe, you know, term baby uh, with a small jaw. What kinds of questions are you asking them? Like, what are you looking for?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first things I'm looking for are how stable, you know, from a, we're air weight actors, right? So the first thing is, is who, who cares if they have a cleft, to be honest, it's, is the baby stable or do I need to come there emergently? Is this baby, you know, if you put the baby in a different position. So we know that babies with a small jaw, just because of gravity, if their tongue is the thing causing the obstruction, if you put them flat on their back with gravity, their tongue falls back um, and that causes obstruction. So if you put the baby on their side or, or on their stomach, do they breathe better? So that's, you know, the first thing I'm gonna ask is, is the baby stable? And if they are stable, what kind of minor interventions can we do? Um, and most often we just start with positioning. The other things that I'm gonna be asking for are, does this child have any other comorbidities? Do they have other syndromic appearances? Do they have a normal ears, normal eyes, normal otherwise spatial development? Because while micrognathia alone or roband sequence in isolation, is one way of management. We also know that some of these kids can be, you know, with a a syndrome such as Treacher Collins or something like that, that all of a sudden their airway management becomes a little bit more complex because they might not just have airway obstruction from glassoptosis, they may have airway obstruction from choanalytresia or, you know, other abnormalities. And so those are the first things that I wanna know is how quickly do I need to get there? Is the baby stable or not? and what are the things they're able to do to make the child more stable and then syndrome. So those are kind of the immediate, like as I'm even maybe walking down towards the Nikki, wanting to know right away. If the baby's relatively stable, but is just having fairly bad, you know, some obstructive events, the next thing I want to know is, has the baby been able to feed yet? Because we all know that with babies and feeding, it goes hand in hand. And so if a baby has problems with airway obstruction, they are not going to successfully feed. It doesn't matter what the cause of airway obstruction is. A baby with airway obstruction is not going to feed Successfully, So if they're stable from an airway standpoint, the next question is, you know, feeding and weight. Gain. So those are kind of the immediate questions I'm asking about,
0: and so let's say the baby is stable, meaning comfortable laying on his on his or her back as just small job. How often are you like doing a bedside flex and uh, what are you looking for? Are you doing jaw thrust during the flex, repositioning?
1: Yeah, so, Answer to all of those is yes, but it kind of you know there's kind of a timeline there. So if I get called about a baby with micrognathia and concern for Roban sequence, I actually don't bring this scope right away. And the reason why is I want to kind of get a sense of the anatomy first. It doesn't mean I I won't get the scope, but most often in these kids, I'm actually waiting a little bit of time to scope them, not like weeks, but maybe a couple of days. And the whole thought process for me is. Having the nurses record, when are they obstructing? How often are they obstructing? With every diaper change, are they going down to oxygen levels of like 70% and like having to get blow by with every diaper change because they cry? Or are they, you know, tolerating normal cares and the only time they have events is when they're feeding? And so with the initial exam, the first thing I'm doing is just getting a sense of how does their jaw look, how small in comparison... And that can be a little bit hard because if you look at a baby just on the side profile, there have been plenty of times where I'm like, holy cow, that jaw looks super small. And then I open like kind of look at their gum lines and I'm like, gosh, the distance between their upper and lower alveolus is not that much. So it looks more severe on the outside than it does on the inside. So those are things that I'm looking for initially. Other things that I'm looking at, and this is probably kind of a funny thing, but I've had it be kind of an issue, especially if I get called by an outside NICU, which is they'll be like, well, the baby's pretty micrognathic, but they're also tongue-tied and we think the tongue-tie might be affecting their feeding. And when I get that phone call, the first thing is absolutely do not do a tongue-tie release or frenulotomy in these children. Do not do it. It is not their tongue tie affecting their feeding. It is their airway. Do not do it. You will make their airway worse. And I say that because we've had a couple of kids who were like, you know, kind of teetering by at an outside nursery, newborn nursery or NICU. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone thought it was the tongue tie and they snipped it. And all of a sudden, we actually had much worse airway symptoms and they're getting sent in for worsening airway distress. And so I really, you know, this isn't so much for the NICUs where I'm at on a day-to-day basis, but for some of the outside ones that we get calls about, it's something that I really do stress. So also on the exam, again, and looking for other signs of syndromic features. So the most common syndrome associated with Broban sequence is Stickler syndrome. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes children with Stickler syndrome have kind of a distinct appearance. They have a little bit flatter, broader nose. Their eyes are a little bit more shallow. They just have this kind of, I I think the nose is the most telling sign. And it's hard to even describe until you see a couple and all of a sudden you're like, wow, without doing any genetic testing, I'm quite sure that child has Stickler syndrome. Um, and so I'm getting this kind of overall gestalt on the child. Are they syndromic? What else is going on? Other things to be thinking about is it's not fully proven yet. Hopefully, maybe someday I'll be in on the on the data that helps to prove this, but we do think that there might be some connection with neonatal abstinence syndrome and robin sequence. So if a baby is having some airway issues and some obstructive events immediately, you know, within a day or two after life, is it the Robann sequence, or are they having withdrawal symptoms from neonatal abstinence syndrome? And that can be a little bit, you know, that can take a couple of days to play out and to figure out what's happening. Or if they're premature by a couple of weeks again, is it because they're premature or is it because of the obstruction? And so this is where I find that really working closely with your NICU nurses. They are your friends. They also can be the hardest nurses because they, they've been, many of them doing this for a long time and they know what this baby needs. But they, I truly have gotten them to become kind of in these situations, they're, they're my friends. And I will sit down with them and say, look, I need you every time this baby has an event to document what triggered it. Were they feeding? Were you changing their diaper? Did you happen to just, did they start crying? What happened? What did you have to do to get them to stop obstructing? Did you have to change their position? Did you have to give them jaw thrust? Did you have to give them oxygen? Or did you just wait 10 seconds and the event went away on its own? And there's not a great place to document this in a chart inside the nurses just doing actually each shift. They'll document how many events and what triggered them. And it's worked out really beautifully for me because then I have good documentation. If I start to decide that they need more intervention, it's not me just saying, well, I think they would do better with distraction or I think we need to intervene. I can go to the neonatologist. I can go to the parents and say, here's what's happening. Here's the pattern. We can fix this by doing this and this and this. And by having that actually documented, I think it makes it a lot easier, especially I would say early on. So if you're new to a facility where they haven't done distractions in the past, and all of a sudden you're waltzing in, and you're like, I had this bright idea to do surgery on a newborn, and it's a big jaw distraction surgery, and it's going to be great. And they're like, what the heck are you talking about? Stay away. We want nothing to do with that. And so you have to be able to come in with some good data and some good documentation as to why you think they need that kind of procedure. So that's how I start. And then kind of getting back to the initial question, I do flexible scope. If I start to think that either number one, they might need distraction or number two, they're going to need an intervention of some sort, whether it's distraction or whether it's something else, that's when I will do a bedside flexible scope. And, you know, you go through the nose and then when you get to the kind of nasopharynx oral pharynx, I'm looking to see with them supine, always very supine. What do I see? Because in the severe Roban kids, I get through the, into the nasopharynx. And if they have a cleft, it can be a little tricky because often the scope will go through the cleft. But all of a sudden you're like, all I see is the tongue. And if they give the jaw thrust, you're like, oh, there's the epiglottis. Now I see it. Um, And it can be a little bit confusing because for truly bad glassoptosis, it's not that you're seeing tongue base. You're actually seeing the tip of the tongue. That tongue like flops back so much and perpendicular that you look in there and you're like, is that the epiglottis or the tip of the tongue? And then they give a jaw thrust and you're like, oh, that was the tongue. There's the epiglottis and you can see it down below. And so I absolutely do a flexible scope. Um, Again, for a variety of reasons. I don't want to be surprised if we went to do a distraction and lo and behold, they had like a molecular cyst too, or they had something abnormal on their vocal cord And I hadn't even noticed or acknowledged that ahead of time. I think you want to make sure that you, you know, dotted your I's and crossed your T's in terms of airway. And again, as a surgeon that does jaw distraction, mandibular distraction, it's an airway procedure, right? It is not a cosmetic procedure it is not a this will help for how their jaw appearance looks later it is a airway procedure so you have to think like an airway surgeon and be thinking and making sure there's nothing else from an airway that you should be dealing with.
0: So on your scope and sometimes I struggle with this because again sometimes it's hard to tell if the baby truly has a small jaw or not or if their airway obstruction is hey The tongue is just big. They got to grow out of their tongue. Is that just, did I make that up in my head? Or do you find babies that have such bad airway obstruction because their tongue is just big? And how can you tell the difference in your initial evaluation? Yeah, I mean, I think, again,
1: the way that you can really tell is, are you seeing just tongue base? Or are you seeing like the entire tongue fall back. And you really, those, that's where your nurses are your friends in terms of that jaw thrust. Because for instance, a child with, you know, trisomy 21, for instance, right? They have big tongues, a lot of them, even as newborns. Back with Wiedemann, not so much because that's anterior tongue and not the back of the tongue. But, you know, for a trisomy 21 kid, if you scoped them and you saw their tongue base, you're not going to be like, oh, jaw distraction is going to help them. And so I think that's where the jaw thrust really helps because you can get a sense of whether it's just the tongue base that's big or whether it is the whole tongue. So like seeing the tip of the tongue all the way back in the oropharynx that gives you that clue that it's truly glossoptosis. And what I will do is once I get the scope in there, sometimes I need that jaw thrust to help figure it out. But then you let go of the jaw thrust and you can be looking at the epiglottis and and then kind of slowly if you're right at the level of the vocal cords and slowly back out and get a sense of is the whole tongue kind of backwards or is this just a big tongue I think just a big tongue the whole thing isn't going to collapse on you um, you're just going to see kind of the tongue base whereas if it's truly glossoptosis the whole tongue just collapses all the way back and I think that's
0: kind of the distinct difference I want to ask you more about workout but I did want to ask you because on the initial eval you know we're talking about positioning, what makes it better? Does tell, help? Do they need blow-by? What is the role of a nasal trumpet for these babies? Like, how do you, is that in part of your temporizing measures as well? And how long can you keep the baby in with a nasal trumpet? Can you send them home with a trumpet? And my other question, in terms of temporizing, let's say they just need prone. My question is, can you send a baby home prone or with a nasal trumpet?
1: The answer to both of those is, You can, and I have, but it changes the dynamics and what kind of families you're thinking about. So um, in terms of a nasal trumpet, my first step is positioning. My second step is actually then doing a nasal trumpet. So let's say that positioning works well when the baby is at rest and sleeping. But when they get agitated or when they're trying to feed, positioning alone isn't cutting it. That's when I'll next go to a nasal trumpet. And I might, we've educated parents about how to change a nasal trumpet in those situations. And if a child did great where with positioning and a nasal trumpet, they met the two criteria. So for me to go home, they have to be able to breathe safely and feed safely. And it can't be like heroic measures to make them at home breathing and feeding safely. Um, and so if without much difficulty, you know, the babies, we get them an apnea, parents, an apnea monitor because their babies are sleeping on their stomach instead of supine. And we teach the parents and they document multiple times that they can change a nasal trumpet so that every couple days we can alternate it. But more importantly, if it gets obstructed, they can take it out and put a new one in. And they live local. Those three things, if those three things can happen with really conservative management, I have sent kids home in those situations, especially a baby who maybe doesn't quite have normal mandible anatomy. And so they may not even be like a like if they have hypoplastic TMJ and they wouldn't be like a perfect distraction candidate, but they're really doing well with positioning and a nasal trumpet. I have done that. I will tell you that more often than not, it's rare to find a child who does okay with those and still feeds well and have a family that's that comfortable to do that. So will I do it? Yes. Have I done it? Yes. Is it routine? No, it's, it's a certain dynamic and with the family that makes that work. But a nasal trumpet more often for me is for maybe an example was I just took care of a baby with stickler who was born at 33 weeks gestation. And it was evident within 48 hours of life for a variety of reasons that she was going to need distraction. But I'm not doing distraction on a 33 week gestational baby, right? So we have to let her feed and grow. And in order to let her feed and grow safely, we had to put the nasal trumpet in her. Um, And with the nasal trumpet in and with some positioning, she wasn't working too hard to breathe. She wasn't having horrible events. She wasn't feeding well, she had an NG tube in, but we were able to let her grow and get her lungs up to like normal age development and get to kind of a healthy weight for distraction and then we distracted her. So for me, the nasal trumpet is amazing and it's your best like immediate temporizing measurement. It's my go-to when I get called a baby who, again, they put them on their, you know, put them prone and they're still not doing well. The first thing is like, okay, get the nasal trumpet in. Because in most cases they're gonna do well with the nasal trumpet in, at least from a breathing standpoint. The other thing I find is that it's hard for most of those babies with a nasal trumpet in to feed well it just, it changes their swallowing. It changes that dynamic. And there are some that do amazingly well feeding with a nasal trumpet in, but a lot of them, it distorts kind of that suck, swallow, breathe coordination. And so they may not be having the obstructive events, but they're still not feeding well if they require a nasal trumpet.
0: Yeah. So I guess for like a uh, term baby with no other, you know, concerns for any other comorbidities that does have riband sequence, who's breathing good, sleeping good, but let's say they're just not taking PO. Is that an indication for distraction or do those babies end up getting G-tubes or NG-tubes? Controversial
1: topic. At our institution, we distract them. And we've got about a 98% success rate in those non-syndromic kids of not needing G-tubes. And we are certainly not the only institution that does that. I think for those of us that truly believe that the breathing and airway and feeding go so hand in hand, definitely. And I would say it's probably more likely at an institution where otolaryngology does the distraction as opposed to plastics, which we are probably far more likely to distract for feeding than go to a G-tube. And again, it has to do with, if you can relieve the airway obstruction, almost all of these kids, especially the non-syndromic ones, feed well. And for what it's worth, even in the syndromic kids, we do have a very high success rate of avoiding a G-tube. It's like 70% of avoiding a G-tube in those kids by relieving their airway obstruction to help their feeding. It's just not quite as high as the non-syndromic ones.
0: Yeah. No, thank you. And then you'd mention, so we talk about, you know, how are they breathing? How are they feeding? And then, you know, obviously sleep disordered breathing. How are they breathing when they sleep? Is there a role for sleep studies in these infants? I mean, I want to say no, but I don't know. I mean, is there a role for a sleep study or apnea monitors? Or if they're symptomatic, you have a reason.
1: So the answer is, depending on your institution, some people really like sleep studies and some of us do not get them. We do not get them at my institution. Getting an inpatient sleep study is hard. We can do it. More often than not, we're probably going to get just a kind of in infant apnea type test instead. But the reason I don't get a sleep study is that in my mind for these kids, if you get a sleep study, you're getting them at their best, right? These kids tend to be at their best while they're sleeping and they tend to have their most symptoms either when they're agitated, crying or feeding. And so why would I make my ultimate decision making on a child when they're at their best instead of when they're either at their most likely or their worst? And so we do not get sleep studies. I do get cap gases in these kits. I find that extremely helpful. I usually will get a cap gas within, if they're already symptomatic, within 24 hours. If they're not super symptomatic, usually within 24 to 48 hours. And then we'll follow it every couple of days to show if they're kind of chronically hypoventilating and have elevated cap gas CO2 levels I think that's a better indicator for me for doing distraction than a sleep study. Now, there are some institutions that do get sleep studies on all of their patients before they distract them. And it's not a right or a wrong. I think it primarily does have to do with your thoughts on would it change my management? To me, if it's a positive sleep study, then if we do what I'm already telling you, I have my nurses do documenting that they have struck, that they be sat that they need interventions, that they're not feeding well, those are probably already positive and already being documented. So the sleep study doesn't help me there. And if it's negative, my response is going to be, well, it's well they're at their best, so I also don't care. So that's why I don't get a sleep study. But again, I think if you go around the country, it's probably a mixed bag on that and certainly not a right or a wrong. It just has to do with what your comfort level is.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I guess my elder, you know, whether it's a baby for a distraction or not, I feel like in infants, especially under six months, we don't have great normative data. And so we're going to get AHIs of 50 to 100 an hour. And then if they we if they can't get distracted, now we've set a baby up for a trait. But anyways. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exactly it. And that's the thing. So it's not validated for
1: newborns. Um, and depending on who reads your sleep studies, they may feel more or less comfortable with it. I will tell you, the kids that I find sleep studies are helpful, and this is in a whole different population than what we're talking about, but it's in the Roban kids who maybe skimmed by and didn't need distraction at age three months or as a newborn, and all of a sudden, they're 18 months, and you thought that their mandible was going to catch up with its growth, and it never really caught up, and parents are describing some sleep symptoms.
0: And you're like, okay, now what am I going to do with this kid? Yeah. What do you do? I do get a sleep study. Are you doing a distraction or a TNA in that 18-month-old? With HI of like 15 an hour, let's just say. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends. If their jaw isn't,
1: if I don't think it's due to the micrognathia, then obviously I would do jaw distraction. But if they have minimal tonsil, minimal adenoid, you scope them and they have just kind of this you know, glossoptosis, that kind of thing, I will do jaw distraction on them. It's far less. Out of all the kids I distract, it is so, so, so much less. But those are the kids where I've gotten sleep studies and I find it helpful and kind of pushing me to make the final decision.
0: All right. So now we have a baby, let's say, who does need a distraction. What are the indications? So we said feeding, breathing, sleeping, if they don't have one of those and they're not able to get temporized.
1: Yeah, those are it. It's really if airway obstruction and feeding for for a newborn. So, you know, I've, I've had kids that have done beautifully and they have kind of mild Roban sequence symptoms and they're doing great. And I've had parents say, you know, can we just do their jaw surgery now so that they won't remember it and we don't have to do jaw surgery when they're older? And the answer is no. I'm not going to do it other than for feeding and breathing symptoms because we don't know what's going to happen long term with their jaw. There is complications related to doing distraction. And again, it's not a cosmetic procedure. It is an airway procedure in a newborn and trying to make the jaw look pretty and symmetric is not one of my indications for doing it.
0: Do you have a age or weight minimum or requirement? So at the very least, they should be gestationally
1: full term. I've done one, not one, I've done a number of them that, you know, if you do the 37 weeks is considered full term, they haven't been much older than that, but they haven't. I've not done any that would be gestationally less than, than 37 or 38 weeks. And then in terms of weight, I generally say I would never do anyone less than two kilograms. But the reality of it is, is usually slightly more than that. We actually just are publishing this myself and a couple other people looking at how small could we go safely. And we had a number of kids that were like 2.3, 2.35 kilograms. They did great without any additional complications. And so I think that for me, that's about as small as I would go. When you get much smaller than that, there's just no real estate to put the plates for the distraction. Um, and so you, you can't find the room to put the plates on anyway. So I, I tend to say roughly at least two, but probably closer to two and a quarter kilograms.
0: Okay. And so let's talk about, so now you have a baby scheduled for the OR. And this is where I feel like whether you're doing the distraction or not, as an otolaryngologist, especially pediatrics, you're going to be part of that airway intubation, DLB. Ours are always DLB distraction kind of, right? And usually nobody's Done most of the time, not usually. Most of the time, the baby's never been intubated. We don't know the what's going to happen at induction, and you know we know that eventually we most distraction surgeons want a nasal intubation. I would say most of the time, and we do want to try to look at the rest of the airway before the distraction to check for subglottic stenosis, tracheomalacia, any other secondary lesions, and it's very important to have your airway plan before the baby's in the room what's your airway plan? What instruments do you like? What's your conversation with your team, your OR team, anesthesia? How does that, because I feel like that's where as an otolaryngologist, we don't, that's a baby we could lose. That, that's, a, that's a baby where the airway can go bad and, you know, but, but that's our job there. So tell me what the airway plan is for you.
1: Yes. And I would also say, and I, the first distraction case each fellow does with me, I say, you always assume that this kid is going to have a nightmare airway. It doesn't matter if on the spectrum of like severity of Roban sequence, they don't look as bad. You really don't know how they're going to act until they've gotten some anesthesia. So the first thing I will say is that this is not a case where you want like an anesthesia resident, like a first year anesthesia resident to be doing the anesthesia. This is where you want an experienced anesthesiologist. So probably not even one that just started, right? Like you want someone who you've worked enough with that you feel comfortable together, like managing airway stuff. And I've I've talked to the head of anesthesias before and been like, I need you to be in this case and not the other person. Not because I don't love the other person, but they're new and I haven't done a bad airway with them yet. They can be in there, but like, I need you to be in there. I can't emphasize that part enough. Number two, this is not a case where you say, well, we'll let anesthesia give it a try. And if it doesn't go well, then we'll take over. I think as an otolaryngologist, you should be ready to be in control of the airway from start to finish. And then going there, I kind of will say stepwise with our fellows. So step one, normal, just using a normal laryngoscope, whether it's the Miller, I always do a straight one, be either a Miller laryngoscope or a Parsons. I kind of do like the Parsons, I, not for any other... DL bronch, except for with kids that have a cleft because the Parsons is a little bit wider and so with the tongue and the glossoptosis I feel like you have a little bit better control with a wider laryngoscope so this is like the one time where I actually will use the Parsons and so it's basically, you do the DL. What do you see? If you, with that and a little bit of cricoid pressure, you have a view. I'll have the fellow take the telescope and quick, just show me the rest of the anatomy to show me that everything else is normal. Now, for what it's worth, I get really annoyed when people say that babies with gloss also have laryngomalacia. There's no way that if you want to say that the definition of laryngomalasia is a floppy epiglottis, well, there's no way to have glossoptosis and not have a floppy epiglottis. So, after the distraction, if they still have a floppy epiglottis, you can tell me that there's laryngomalasia. But at the time of the DL bronch, you can't say that because it's more likely the the glossoptosis causing the retroflexed epiglottis. But anyway, that's an annoying end on my part. Because you'll look at data, and it's like all these babies had the Malaysia. Well, maybe. So if with a normal DL and with and cricoid pressure, they can get the view, fantastic, great. Do the telescope, do the exam, put the breathing tube in, and you know we'll just quick put it through the nose and do a nasal tracheal intubation. Or sometimes if it's the kid is not doing great, they're starting to desat, and we have a great view. I actually will just orally intubate the kid. For me, it's. The nasal tube is nice, but it's not necessary during surgery. And so if I feel the need to just get the oral tube in, I just do. So if that goes great, Great. My next step is I, I always have the glide scope set up for these kids always. And the reason why is amazing how often that you don't have a good view which is a normal laryngoscope but you get the glide scope in there and you can see how anterior it is and all of a sudden you have a really good view. And so there've been a number of these kids that I've intubated just with the glide scope and the reason that matters to me is when you take these babies up to the NICU and you're like if this baby suddenly extubates. By the way, they are easy to intubate with the GlideScope, right? It is our job to be to be educating anyone else who might have to deal with this baby's airway. Like if you can just use the GlideScope and and many of the ICU settings now have them, it's just get the GlideScope. It should be, you know, an easy intubation with that. So I do always have the GlideScope and I like that a lot. If that doesn't work, but I can kind of see the arytenoids with a DL, a lot of times these kids I've intubated over a telescope. So I always have a telescope loaded with an endotracheal tube ready to go because I honestly think out of all things as an otolaryngologist that will help you get the airway, it's that. If you can do a DL and you can see the arytenoids and get your telescope up the anterior, you can slide in over the telescope. And that's a great skill to have. And it's what sets you apart, again, from anesthesia and things like that is the ability to know how to use a telescope and intubate over a telescope. And then last but not least is the flexible fiber optic intubation nasally. And this is from my standpoint in a perfect setting. I like this again because it's the easiest way to do a nasal intubation. I also think if you are comfortable with a flexible nasal intubation for these kids that maybe, even as you get older, and I'll give you an example. Last night, I got called for an OAV kid who can't open her mouth even two millimeters because she's got such bad trismus. And anesthesia couldn't intubate, but I could go do the flexible intubation, right? And like that's, again, that's what sets you apart from an airway standpoint. And so that's kind of my final kind of step. And then last but not least is I always have a trach set in the room, ready to go. And I don't think you can underestimate having that available you hope you never have to use it because you hope that with different techniques and, and maneuvers you're gonna be fine without it. But that's kind of my stepwise ladder. Now, along those things is talking with your anesthesiologist, and I've had a number of kids where the minute we didn't attempt to, you know, do the do the DL and we didn't have a view, immediately turning the baby onto their side and mass ventilating on the side or even prone bagging them up and then putting them back supine, right? Because a lot of them are going to be a really hard mask. I always have a towel clip on the field and I hate grabbing the tongue, but I've certainly done it before. And so these are just little tricks, like have everything ready. And then the one thing I have, I I really have emphasized with my fellows is, you know, there are some cases where you give people lots of attempts and you're not worried and they're an easy mask and they're an easy ventilation. And and so you keep trying the same thing a few times before you move on. Most of these kids, if I trust how, if I trust my fellows technique or my own technique, and I take a look and I can't even remotely get what I need, I don't say, okay, well, let me try that again. It's next up the ladder. Because the longer you spend on these kids, the more likely they are to either have a spontaneous laryngospasm or something in or cause bleeding or something like that. So these are the kids that you don't mess around with multiple attempts. And then in communicating with anesthesiologists, I I flat out say, here's my ladder approach. Here's what I'm going to try so that they know what's going through my mind. We try to keep them spontaneously breathing because they're always going to be able to support themselves better than me, but they always have a paralytic on the field ready to go just in case there's a of spasm. And those are the things that, again, you've got communicated with your anesthesiologist ahead of time.
0: So I, in my mind, have a very similar ladder. Like what if they're maskable, what are we using to mask to, you know, the DL? I like a number one Phillips, which I know every time I, I ask for one, especially in a preemie or a infant, they're a newborn, they're like, that's so big. But like you said, with the Parsons, it's the same thing. It's never too big. It gets the tongue out the way. Um, And that's something that uh, Romaine Johnson's like always get, I always just use the number one Phillips based on what I learned with him. So let me ask you a question. Do you ever go out of order in the sense of, do you ever just start with the flex through the nose? Because you know, you're going to have to intubate or they, we prefer that. Try to, intubate, secure the tube with your flex, maybe also been able to look at the airway and then do a DL? Or do you feel like you don't have a good assessment of the airway to then pass on because you have a nasal intubation that's precessing your DL? Yeah. So
1: the answer to your question is, yes, I have gone straight to a flexible fiber optic nasal intubation, but then I do not think doing a DL afterwards is realistic. You, you have something to guide your way. You have something holding the tongue forward. It's your brain automatically knows, as if, you know, if I just follow this nasal tracheal tube, I'm going to get to where I'm supposed to be going. And so I have done it. But then I don't pass off to my NICU that, hey, this is going to be like an easy intubation because if I have a nasal tracheal tube in and then I do a DL with a, you know, a Philips laryngoscope and it's like, you know, I'm like, oh, this was easy. It's a grade one view. Like it's probably not an easy grade one view. And my mind is automatically playing just distortion tricks on me. So that's the only difference. I don't think it's wrong. And I think there are plenty of people who go straight to a flexible intubation and like that's their airway assessment, right? Like that's like, they're looking for laryngomalacia, whether or not they believe that that can happen when you have glossoptosis, but they're looking for subglottic stenosis, even, you know, without doing true measurements, can you say, but I mean, you would notice if there was like a super congenital stenosis or looking for tracheomalacia. You know, they're looking for all those things um, with a flexible scope and you can certainly do it. But I think, you know, in terms of me, to me, the bigger purpose of doing like a DL bronc at the beginning is less so looking for secondary lesions, honestly, and more so that I can hand off to teams who might be taking care of this child that... This airway is really bad or this airway is actually not too bad. And an experienced anesthesiologist would be able to intubate this child without
0: any help type situation. All right. So now let's say the airway secured and you're getting set up for your distraction. Do you monitor Marge on these babies? I do. And
1: honestly, it always goes off the entire time. And so to me, you still have to be safe looking for the Marge. And it's not like other cases where you rely on it to kind of identify it. For me, it's like that constant reminder that the anatomy is really tiny and that you just need to be safe in your anatomy. And so to me, it's just more of that reminder not to take it for granted that the Marge is there to do the dissection, I automatically find, and it's a little bit challenging in newborns because their submandibular glands are like the size of a pinky nail. But my goal automatically is to go straight, you know, subplatisma and find that submandibular gland and then go straight up to the mandible. And so then you know that you'd be keeping it sake. But I do monitor it. I think you could easily do this procedure and not monitor it. But for me, it's just that reminder.
0: Yeah. And then um, there's internal fixation and external. Can you kind of tell us the differences in those? Yeah. So the internal distractors mean that
1: the plates and the screws and the, most importantly, the part of the device that's going to distract. So spread apart when you do the distraction is all under the skin. And in those cases, the only thing that sticks out from the skin is where the actual distraction arm is. And most of us put it kind of under the mastoid tip. Some people will actually have it come out anteriorly underneath in the front part of the neck, but most of us go posteriorly. But that's the only part of the device that shows as opposed to external devices, which has like the pins that go through the mandible, but the rest of the distraction arm kind of sticks out as an external fixation device from it. And so they look like they've got this massive like hardware on their infrared border, their mandible for, you know, the time that it's there. The benefit to the external device is you can get it so that it distracts in multiple directions as opposed to the internal devices, which generally only distract in one direction. Now for straightforward Roban sequence kids, they usually only need distraction in one direction and that's just in the anterior posterior direction. And so I 95 out of 100 times will do an internal device for especially for Roban sequence kids, primarily because nursing care is easier. Nurses aren't so freaked out by it. Parents aren't so nervous about it. And I think in the end, the scarring that's from it is much better. So the internal devices, the only scar is you have a small incision just, you know, in their neck, but you can make that look pretty subtle. And then just the pin site underneath their ear. For the external devices, you still have to have the neck incision, but you've got these pins that kind of go in on the, essentially on the face near the inferior border of the mandible. So when all is said and done, they've got these scars on their actual face. They're small, they're little pin sites, but you can see them. And so I don't, I don't like that scar as much, but primarily I don't like the external device because I just think the nurses get really nervous about caring for it. And parents get nervous about how it looks when the kids go home. The external device I've used a couple of times for kids that, again, syndromic that maybe their mandible was so asymmetric from one side to the other, that I was going to have to distract in multiple directions. That's almost always for the older kids. That's really not likely for a newborn. That would be in the, you know, teacher Collins asymmetry or hemifacial microsomia, where you're really having to distract different amounts for different directions. And those are the ones where I'm more likely to use the external devices.
0: I see. And then the one thing I know not to circle back um, in terms of pre up assessment. Does your CT kind of help you decide what directions and vectors and all that stuff? Is that where the CT is helpful? Do you routinely get CTs? I don't always get CT
1: scans. So CT scans are helpful for two reasons. They're helpful in kids who are syndromic, who might have same asymmetry. So for instance, I had a child recently that had OAV um, and has pretty hypoplastic condyles. And so figuring out if they're even a distraction candidate for the syndromic kids, I think is really helpful. The other place I like it is I do want to use 3D imaging, like pre-surgical planning. Some people like to use that for all of it. And some people don't use it much at all. I tend to use it for kids where if I'm not going to be distracting them for a couple of weeks because they need to grow, they need to feed, they need to... Kind of declare themselves a CT scan in those settings and then getting the 3D imaging is helpful. Primarily, it helps honestly for a routine Roban kid. It helps show the tooth roots. And so you can kind of plan out ahead of time and then the inferior alveolar nerve. You can mark out ahead of time where you're going to make, put your pins in, your screws in, and then how you're going to make your osteotomy um, and kind of which area you can mark out where to be careful for the inferior alveolar nerve. Without the 3D imaging, Honestly, it doesn't otherwise change my technique much. We still always find inferior alveolar nerve. We are looking for tooth roots. We're using the shorter screws that would be less likely to cause damage. And so I do use it, but I don't necessarily think you need it for non-syndromic kids. But again, there are some people who use it for all of it, and that's not wrong either. What I tend to find is that there'll be a newborn with Robann's sequence, and we've been kind of watching, trying to decide if they need it. And then, about the time we decide that they need it, parents are like, okay, so can we have surgery like tomorrow? And you're like, well, it's like a three hour long surgery. Um, Maybe not tomorrow. Um, And so, to do the imaging, the 3D imaging and pre planning, it's about, uh, they can rush it for in about a week, but it's definitely a delay. Um, And so, I don't, if I don't think it's going to change how I do the procedure or, or my technique, I don't necessarily
0: use it. All right. So you've done the surgery. Do you start distracting or doing the rotations um, post-up day one? How does that work? Yep. So once you make the osteotomies, you want to
1: kind of wait a day or two. Most people wait somewhere around 36 to 48 hours, which is what I do as well. To be honest, these surgeries almost always get added on late at night for me. Um, and so I won't do it the next day, but I'll do it the morning after that. So that's usually 36 hours. And that's when I start the distraction process. And for newborns, you're usually doing pin turns twice a day. What's interesting is babies can actually make like three millimeters of new bone per day. I don't push it that much. I do two millimeters of distraction a day, a millimeter in the morning and a millimeter at night. I know some people do a little bit less than that. They'll do like one millimeter in the morning and a half millimeter at night or 0.75 millimeters twice a day. And they'll just do 1.5. I think their worry is that they won't form as nice new bone, but I've never had an issue. And I think there's lots of, you know, I I think I'm kind of in that equal um, number of people who do the two millimeters a day. So I do two millimeters one morning, one at night, And my goal is to get them so that they have what I tell parents is a little bit of an underbite or the jaw, the mandible just has a little bit of an underjet, meaning it's a little bit farther out than the upper jaw. So you're overcorrecting it. And I usually will overcorrect by about two millimeters. And the reason for this is we know that in Roban sequence, just with the natural growth pattern of the maxilla and the mandible, that the maxilla is still going to catch up and probably correct itself. So if you overcorrect by, you know, about two millimeters, usually a year later, they're kind of nicely back in a class one occlusion. If you don't overcorrect, what you usually find is that a year or two later, you're like, gosh, everything's good. Everything looks great. But I kind of wish I maybe they have just a really, really subtle overbite. And I really wish I would have distracted just slightly more. So I tell all those parents that their children will look like Jay Leno when we're done. And that by a year later, they won't notice that any longer.
0: Yeah. And so during this process, they're intubated the whole time while you're rotating? Nope, not the whole time. So I usually will keep them intubated
1: until I've distracted around four or five millimeters. So that's usually if you start distraction at 36 hours and you do two millimeters a day, it's usually around four days after their surgery that I extubate them. Um, I just extubate them in the NICU at the bedside. um, Nothing special. And depending on how bad their airway is, sometimes I'll just round on the morning and I'll be like, just, you know, just pull the tube when you're ready, put in a nasal trumpet, they'll be fine. Sometimes I will let them know that I'm at least physically on campus. But if I really think I need to be at the bedside, then they're probably not ready to extubate yet. But usually, you know, for these kids, you know, if they were kind of getting by ahead of time, just needed positioning and stuff. If you wait and now they're four or five millimeters ahead, like that's a big change for them. Um, That's a 50% improvement in their airway from glossoptosis. Um, And so I usually think they're ready at that point. And then usually they still have another, you know, couple of days of distraction after that, because I would say on average, most of these kids, it's I'm distracting between probably 12 and 14 millimeters. There's no set number. The last one I did, it was 20. That's the farthest I've had to go was 20, but probably on average it's 12 to 14 millimeters. And so you know, usually that's, you know, six or seven days of distraction. So if you pull the tube, you know, after four days, they still usually have another couple of days of distraction. And, and they usually tolerate it just fine.
0: And then the external distractors have to come off, but the internal ones you leave in place. So the external devices, they both have to come out, but the hardware
1: always has to come out. And so once you're done with distraction, you have to leave the actual plates in the bone for... Somewhere between eight and 12 weeks, that's called the consolidation phase where that bone is kind of hardening up from like soft little new bone, callusy type bone to like actual bone. And so I wait 10 weeks after distraction to take out the hardware, but some people do a little bit less and some people do a little bit more. Waiting longer than three months because they're babies, they usually start to grow a lot of bone that like overgrows the plates and it becomes really hard to take the, the plates out. The benefit of the external device is when it's time to remove it, you actually don't have to reopen their incision because there's a way to undo the pins and you just slide it out. You undo the pins and you slide it out from the bone. Um, and that is probably the one, in my mind, the one benefit of doing the external device, along with being able to do multi-directional. But otherwise, most of the other things are downsides. For the internal devices, I usually will end up taking them back to the OR about 10 weeks later. And it's a quick surgery. You just open up their incision you take out the plates and the hardware. I usually just keep them in an observation unit overnight and they go home the next day. Um, and the only reason I keep them overnight after that surgery is because they're still babies and I want to make sure they're going to feed um, and that we have pain control, honestly, with just Tylenol. And so that's why I keep them overnight at that point. So that's, uh, that's a quicker procedure, but it's just opening up the same incisions and taking out the plate. So that's probably the one downside with the internal devices is that you do have to go back and open up the the incision. And so then they, for older kids, if you were going to do distraction, they may, maybe they had a trach, maybe they're stable enough that you're going to send them home with the parents doing the distraction. But for newborns, you're not going to do that, right? They're usually, I start to work on feeding a lot with them. As soon as the breathing tube is out, we have the speech therapists are feeding people really start working with them to try to get them to bottle by mouth. And what I generally find is the first few days while you're still distracting them, they're doing better with feeding, but they're still not a hundred percent because you know, every twelve hours you're adjusting how that feel of their mandible is. But once you stop doing the distraction, most of them take to feeding quickly pretty well. Um, and you can just the pins that are out where you're the distraction arm for the internal devices, those slide out. There's a little pinching device that's got this little ball socket thing that you just pinch right underneath the skin, and those slide out. So when they go home, they do have the hardware under their skin, but there's nothing that's showing. So, you know, strangers on the street wouldn't see any weird hardware or anything.
0: Yeah. And I feel like this is probably an entire different podcast, not topic, but extension. But um, I guess just really quickly, your kids that are syndromic, are there other special considerations um, in terms of post-op complications or intra-op with your sticklers, Stutcher-Collins or other kids? Or is it pretty consistent? Yeah, stickler kids, not really.
1: Honestly, their syndromic stuff is unrelated really to, you know, the shape and development of their mandible. They just, they're micrognathic, but they aren't, you know, they don't tend to have hypoplastic TMJs or anything like that. So not really. Um, In terms of syndromic, I tend to kind of tell parents of kids with stickler, they're going to have the same, you know, success rate as a just normal non-syndromic Roband sequence child. And oftentimes, to be honest, we don't even have the genetics back on any of these kids when we take them to do distraction. So you're kind of gauging syndromic either if they have that classic stickler appearance or like if there's a parent that has stickler and you're like, yep, okay, you have stickler. For the treacher Collins, first of all, some of them are just not going to be candidates for distraction because they're not going to have normal mandible anatomy. If they don't have you know, a fossa where their their joint sense, um for the condyle like you can't really distract them. There's nothing to hold that in place. until so you distract them, there's not that joint um, the fossa holding it in place. And so there are some kids with syndromic type features that either it eliminates them from being a distraction candidate as a newborn and they might be more likely to need a trach and you need distraction when they're older and you can do more stuff with their anatomy. Or um, if they do need it, so let's say they, they're they a syndromic, but they are a good distraction candidate, um, but maybe they've got some global hypotonia or something like that. I do, those are the parents that I'm very upfront with. Like, look, we're going to do this surgery. They have a higher rate of needing, you know, a trach afterwards, they have a higher rate of still needing a G tube. Do I think it's worth doing the distraction? Yes, because our goal is to try to avoid those. And I think, you know, our numbers show that we're maybe 50 or 70% success in these situations. But if it doesn't work, then the next step is going to be trach or G2 or both, depending on how bad it is. And like, those are the ones that, I don't think it's wrong to do the surgery, but I think you have to be really upfront with the parents about the success rate and let them decide, do they even want you to try that? Or would they rather go to like, a definitive, you know, trach G-tube and deal
0: with the smaller jaw down the road. Well, and also sometimes the airway is so bad that um, if they're not intubatable, and yes, you can put a trach in, but let's say the trach comes out in six months and there's obstruction, some sort of event, and if the baby's not intubatable, you know, for that reason itself, sometimes, like you said, the expectation should be there that they might still need the trach, but maybe we're doing that to help prevent a catastrophe despite a trach.
1: Yep, for sure. And those are, you know, like if I think about the last child that was like a Nager syndrome child, we had like no mandible, you know, he got a trach on, you know, minute zero of life and got distracted at like eight or nine months of life because by then he finally had enough mandible that we could get plates on him. And so the whole point when we put the trach in was like, look, we want to get the trach out. We know you want the trach out. Um, we just have to wait until we can do the surgery that will help us do that. And so I think you can have those discussions with the parents and say, you know, we've got options that this just the options aren't quite there yet. Like a trach is going to be the best option now. And then, you know, as soon as we put that trach in, we'll start having
0: the discussion of what needs to happen to get it out. Right. And the, the similar conversations that we have with uh, quainal or piriform after sometimes, depending on the comorbidities in the child. As we're wrapping up, this has been so great because you can tell like there's stuff that and I know about these babies, but there's definitely those little things because we, we're not our it's our craniofacial plastics team here that does actual distractions that were involved with all the airway stuff. Any other like follow up, post-op, like complications uh, ever have to go back within like three months to revise? Do those things happen? Occasionally,
1: um, you know, you always warn them about infection. So like I have them on antibiotics while I'm actually doing the pin turns and distracting them, but then I usually don't keep them on antibiotics. But they're, you know, it's hardware. It's it's hardware in a body and it's usually very close to the skin surface and at some point was external to the skin as well. And so there is a risk of infection. So you wanna be watching for that. And I had I saw this once as a fellow where the baby's bone was just so soft that like at like we distracted like eight millimeters and the plate came out like the screws just didn't have good enough purchase and in that case had to go back took the plates out and just pretended it was like a mandible fracture and put like a normal non-distraction plate and that and then you know the distraction was just done at that point and the baby did fine because they'd already been distracted like eight or nine millimeters um and so it wasn't ideal so you do have to have those conversations with them the biggest thing you know once they're at home is just worrying about infection and just watching for that. And then, you know, my hope and what I always kind of say, this is a success is then when we go back again, I think over 90% of these kids have cleft palates. So you go back then either when you remove their hardware at three months or then when they get their, their palate surgery at 10 or 12 months of age and you do the DL. And if they're like that grade one view, you're like, Hooray! Like, this is why we did the surgery. Because again, from an airway, that was the whole point with airway. And so um, that's kind of the follow up that that I always love is when I get to go tell parents like, hey, you know, remember when I told them that told you that your kid was a really hard to get a breathing tube in? They're no longer hard. They're like a normal anatomy. And it's it's fun to be able to tell them that. And and to also tell the, you know, anesthesia, hey, take difficult airway out of their label. Like they're not a difficult airway. Yes.
0: Well, thank you so much, Brianne. Um, This was a great conversation. I loved it because I learned a ton. Brianne, are you on any social media? How can, um, if people have questions or how can people learn more about you or uh, get in touch with you?
1: Yep. So um, number one, I'm I'm on Facebook and Instagram. um, So they can look for me just under my normal, well, for Facebook, it's Brianne Barnett Roby. And for Instagram, it's Bri.Barnett Roby on Instagram. And then, um, you know, if they check out our fellowship website, they'll see that like my email is listed and on the ASPO website also, um, it's listed and I get emails all the time. I love talking to potential fellowship candidates or potential residents if they're like, Hey, we saw your talk on distraction. Like we would love to learn how to do that. Like that to me is, is so fun. It's so fun to talk with them. And so I'm always happy to have people reach out to me and chat and talk about it. And, you know, as you can see, I can talk for hours and hours about it.
0: <laughs> well, it's great stuff. To all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, and for anybody that knew that stopped by, thank you for your time today. I you check us out again. Uh, You can find Backtable ENT on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We love feedback. Reach out to us for topics, ideas, speakers, or if you ever want to come on the show. And I think that's a wrap. Bye-bye, y'all.